Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. We often hear, and we talk a lot about in this country, American exceptionalism. But when it comes to paid family and medical leave, America is exceptional in the worst possible way. No matter who you are or where you work, you probably know someone who's had to take time off to care for themselves or their loved ones. In most countries, that need is understood and supported with guaranteed paid leave for workers. But on this topic, like many in the care economy sphere, the U.S. stands out in the wrong kind of way. Welcome back to Women Belong in the House. I'm your host, Jenny Kaplan. Today, we're talking about paid family and medical leave. This part of the care economy is familiar to most. It's easy to think of it as solely encompassing parental leave, but paid family and medical leave includes much more. American workers are not guaranteed compensation if they need to take a leave of absence to care for a new child, an ailing family member, or their own health. At the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, it looked like the U.S.'s outlier status on this subject might finally change. In March of 2020, Congress acted swiftly and in a bipartisan manner to create a federal emergency paid sick and child care leave program. Because so many of our nation's essential workers didn't have access to these programs, it was a crucial part of our initial response to the pandemic. But once again, the breakthrough proved temporary. Despite the fact that the American public overwhelmingly supports a paid family and medical leave policy, despite the fact that we're the only industrialized nation without such a policy, when Democrats moved to make paid family and medical leave law through the Build Back Better Act, it didn't make it through. So today, I'm asking why this seemingly popular program became such a contentious issue in the fight over Build Back Better. What kinds of protections do currently exist? How has the conversation evolved? And where do we go from here? To do that, I'm first joined again by White Picket Fence host and family sociologist Julie Kohler. Hi, Julie. Hi, Jenny. It's great to see you. I'd love to start off by asking about your experience with paid or unpaid leave as a working mom. Yeah, well, most importantly, when my son was born, he's now seven, I was one of the 20% of Americans who had access to paid parental leave. So in that respect, I feel very, very fortunate. I took 12 weeks of paid leave when my son was born, and during that time, I was able to care for him and Um, really devote full time, you know, to both recovering from childbirth and and starting to adapt to life with a new baby. It was not law that my organization provided me with that leave, but it was something that they provided voluntarily because it was congruent with sort of the values that they espoused. And I realized, like, that is a very rarefied position to be in. So for a long time, the amount of leave that I took, which was 12 weeks, was kind of considered the gold standard. And now, repeatedly, you hear about organizations and especially many of the tech companies that are offering more like six months paid leave. 
So we are seeing like much more generous leaves, but these are contained within certain industries, within certain companies, and it is not widely available to all. And not surprisingly, when it comes to sort of who enjoys those benefits, it's largely highly paid workers. And so the workers who need that benefit the most are usually the workers that don't have it available to them. I also know that there's a big distinction between the U.S. and countries around the world when it comes to what kind of leave is typical, what kind of leave is mandated. What are some of those differences? How does the U.S. compare to our peers? We are an extreme outlier in that we don't provide paid leave to our employees. So let's take it in separate chunks here. The United States is one of seven countries in the world without national paid maternity leave. And just to kind of give you a sense of what those other countries are, who, what kind of company we keep, the other countries that lack national paid maternity leave include the Marshall Islands, Micronesia, Nauru, Palu, Papua New Guinea, and Tonga. So in other words, we are the only industrialized country in the world that does not provide paid maternity leave. The average length of time is 29 weeks. And here in the United States, we have 12 unpaid weeks, and even that is only applicable to some employees. The United States is one of 83 countries in the world without national paid paternity leave. And again, among the countries that offer paid paternity leave, the average amount of time is 16 paid weeks. So we are an extreme outlier in that direction. And the United States is one of 11 countries that does not offer paid leave for health problems to all workers. Of the countries that do, 132 countries offer three or more months of paid sick leave. Um, 62 countries offer a year more if needed. So in almost every other country in the world, there is a recognition that people have to deal with their own health issues, that they have family responsibilities that they need to attend to. And there is an understanding that they still deserve to be able to return to the workforce. Let's zoom in now on what we do have in the U.S. Before the 1993 Family and Medical Leave Act, or FMLA, workers had no sort of job security or protection when they had to take time off for family or medical reasons. What is the impact of that lack of coverage, and how has that changed since that was implemented? I think one thing I'd like to do is even take a step back one point further. So the first step in providing sort of any job protections for people for caregiving responsibilities was actually in 1978 when we passed the Pregnancy Discrimination Act. So prior to 1978, it was legal for an employer to fire a person who came and said that they were pregnant which in the scheme of things is not that long ago. I mean, when Senator Elizabeth Warren was running for president, she often told the story on the campaign trail that when she was a 22-year-old teacher, um, she got pregnant with her child, told the principal the news, and was promptly not welcomed back. So pregnancy discrimination was rampant and widespread and legal prior to that. And so, you know, there was real progress in the years from 1978 to 1993 when the Family Medical Leave Act was passed in that pregnancy-related discrimination was illegal. But once you had a child, 
no employer was required to provide you with any leave to care for th that child. So you could, you know, you couldn't lose your job on account of your pregnancy if you were a pregnant person, but you were not entitled to any amount of leave. So when that act was passed, it was a landmark step in at least in concept, moving us to a point where we recognize that caregiving for a new child, for a new infant, is work, it is valuable, and that people have the right to return to their workforce after they have a child. It also recognizes that people have other reasons why they may need to be providing care to family members, and that it provides at least the ability to access unpaid time off to many workers to carry out those caregiving responsibilities. How did the 1993 Act come to pass? Was it a major fight? Was it partisan? I mean, it's hard to think about anything not being a major partisan fight these days. It was passed with some bipartisan support. It was something that President Bill Clinton at the time was a, a champion for, and it was a very, you know, uh, celebrated bill signing ceremony and really recognized as a major step forward. And what was the effect after it did pass? What was the effect on Americans and American families? Well, the most important statistic is that the Family Medical Leave Act has been used more than 280 million times between its passage or when it went into effect in 1995 and now 27 years later. So that is really significant. Millions and millions of Americans have been able to access time off from their work in order to carry out their caregiving responsibilities. But there are, of course, problems. Number one is that the act was constructed in such a way so that it doesn't apply to every employer. You need to be an employer of a certain size. And so many millions of Americans work for organizations or companies that simply aren't covered by the Family Medical Leave Act. They're exempt from that. And the other problem is that this is unpaid leave. And so even for workers who work for organizations or companies that are mandated to provide that unpaid time off, for many workers, taking unpaid leave is just not practical or feasible. And so again, we have a policy that disproportionately is benefiting higher paid workers, and we have a bifurcation of who really, in practical effects, has access to this benefit. So it's clear that it has a lot of shortcomings. <laughs> and after almost 30 years and the pandemic, which pushed millions of people out of the workforce, lawmakers are rethinking the FMLA and are thinking about how to make it better. There was a push to include paid leave in the Build Back Better legislation. And yet... Despite the fact that 84% of Americans support paid family leave, it was a major battle for it to be included. Why is that? Why does this feel so politically challenging if it has such broad popular support? I think there are a few reasons. And actually, these were all reasons that we delved into on this last season of White Picket Fence. One, there is a ideology about families and about who should be providing unpaid care work, who should be performing that unpaid care work. That is a legacy, frankly, of another era, but it has not been updated in the minds of too many policymakers that have discretion over this. So 
we really delved into that family ideology, this kind of idealization of a family type that doesn't exist that much in practice anymore and actually was always a historical aberration, this kind of myth of the two-parent nuclear family with a breadwinner father and a homemaker mother. But still too often, that ideology of what families should look like, how they should be structured, is driving too many policy decisions. And so there's not a recognition that in today's economy, two salaries is often necessary in order to support families. There's not a recognition that not all families have two parents and that some may be headed by single parents and that single parent needs to be in the labor force. And there's not a a recognition that, frankly, some families may just want to have both parents in the labor force. So, So we are still kind of grounding our policy decisions too often in a vision of family that just doesn't meet today's reality. But second, there's a whole ideology about the economy, how it works, what constitutes real economic activity. And for too often, this unpaid caregiving work has not been seen as real economically valuable work. Now, I hope the pandemic disrupted this to a certain extent. We certainly saw throughout the last two years that society, frankly, does not function without caregivers. But there is still a reticence to really provide the economic value to that work and to recognize it and to support it. And then finally, I would say that we have a bit of a democracy crisis. You know, if 84% of Americans are supportive of a policy and we can't get congressional movement, there is a real disconnect. We are not, as a country, doing what most people want. Our leaders, our elected leaders, are not representing the interests of most people. The issues that everyday Americans really care about are just not receiving the same attention and value in congressional debates that they do at people's kitchen tables. To dive into that congressional debate, I spoke with Representative Lauren Underwood from Illinois' 14th District. If you're a longtime listener of Women Belong in the House, then you're likely very familiar with Representative Underwood. This time around, we're looking at her fight to expand access to existing worker protections. Plus, she's taking us behind the scenes of what happened in Congress during the negotiations for Build Back Better and why she ultimately thinks it failed to pass. I know you've been a vocal advocate for paid family and medical leave. And so I want to start off with why is that so important to you? What about that issue stands out to you as being so critical for America and American families? This issue is important to me because it's just like this blaringly obvious problem that we can solve and that basically everybody agrees that we need to solve. And yet, it hasn't been done. It's interesting that it's something that does feel like it has such broad support and yet continues to be a hot button issue. Why do you think that is? Part of it is that representation matters. And when you have a Congress that looks like the American people with the lived experiences of the American people, we very clearly can see both these problems and embrace 
obvious solutions that will work. And yet uh, we've continued to have in both parties loud, powerful voices that maybe do not have the lived experiences of the American people and have been barriers to progress. I think that there is a direct line between the election of more and more women to the House and the Senate and progress on this issue. I also think that during the pandemic, paid leave was moved from just a women's economic issue, just a, right? Like just a women's, like a sidebar economic issue to a key driver of growth in the COVID economy. The Family and Medical Leave Act was signed into law in 1993 and has sort of just been around (laughs) since. And now that, as you mentioned, the pandemic has so clearly exposed cracks and needs in the care economy, there's attention being put again on the Family and Medical Leave Act and paid family and medical leave. And I'm curious, looking back at the previously passed act, what are the shortcomings of what we currently have? What needs to be changed? FMLA, the Family Medical Leave Act, is the singular leave protection that most workers have in this country, despite the many proposals that we have embraced in Congress that may have passed the House, et cetera. Okay, so let's just start there. The Family Medical Leave Act's purpose is to protect the jobs of workers so that they can take time off to care for themselves and their families without having to sacrifice their employment, meaning that they wouldn't lose their job for taking up to 12 weeks of unpaid leave. However, Only 56% of U.S. workers are protected by the Family and Medical Leave Act. So we have over 40% of workers who don't have this benefit. They don't have this right. And we've left out workers at smaller employers, people who work one or multiple part-time jobs, people who are re-entering the workforce, maybe because they lost their jobs or even had to quit due to caregiving responsibilities during the pandemic, right? There's so, like, we're talking about millions of workers who have been left out. I think that a lot of people assume that because it's categorized as, like, a benefit, that it means that it's paid. But FMLA on its own just prevents you from being fired. It does not automatically come with any kind of payment commensurate with your salary or not. So in thinking about that huge percentage of workers who are not covered, I also am, as a small business owner, I could totally see why folks would maybe be nervous about where that support would come from. And so I'm curious, how do your future plans take into account both like the fact that there are these millions of workers who don't have this protection and also how some of those folks who aren't required to give this kind of leave may have their own challenges in making that a reality of businesses. Sure. So let's talk about the paid leave proposals. I think that there are really two popular ones. The first is the Family Act, and that's really been like championed by Senator Gillibrand. And then the second is the paid leave policy that was in Biden's American Families Plan, which was 
part of the Build Back Better Act. And so in that program, there was a guarantee of 12 weeks of paid parental, paid family, and paid personal illness or safe leave. And it would provide workers up to $4,000 a month through basically like an insurance program. And that's where the salary, the payment would come from. And so for small businesses who had not offered a paid leave benefit, or this is something that is a new concept for them because their employees never had the job protection portion either. And so as we consider and as we value all workers, right, we need to make sure that their jobs are protected, right? So a working mom shouldn't be denied job-protected maternity leave just because she happens to work for a company with less than 50 employees. Just as an example, the other thing that we know is that around the world, most nations don't have this kind of employer-sized threshold for family leave. And so we've seen employers of all sizes be competitive in their countries um, and, you know, create a sustainable economy in their nations. And so, you know, we're pretty confident that a universal paid leave proposal that would cover all workers, regardless of employer size or length of employment or full or part time status, would be successful here. Could you walk me through the different proposals? So there's the... American Families Plan, the original, the Family Act, and then my understanding is that you're also planning on introducing the Jobs Protection Act in the coming weeks. So what are the differences between those those three things? So the key areas that we are hoping to improve from the existing law, the Family Medical Leave Act, are one, to make sure that all workers regardless of employer size, full or part-time status, you know, um, the length of time that they've been on their job, which right now is a 12-month requirement that you've been at the job in order to even qualify to have your job protected for taking leave, okay? That all workers would qualify for the family and medical leave benefit. And that policy change is in my bill, the Job Protection Act, where we are really expanding the number of workers that qualify, breaking down barriers um, so that those workers will be able to access these important job-protecting benefits. So if the Job Protection Act passes on its own, we would go from 56% of workers qualifying to nearly 100% of workers qualifying for, again, those 12 weeks of unpaid leave. That works hand in glove with the paid leave proposals. Those proposals would offer workers a salary benefit. Now, it's not going to be 100% under the federal program because we know that there is a wide range of salary workers in this country. Um, And so the the proposal that was in the Build Back Better Act would be up to $4,000 a month for workers who take advantage of the paid parental, family, and sick safe leave. That's how they kind of work together because we know that workers want two things, right? They want to qualify for it and they want to be paid. And in the Congress, even though it seems really straightforward, like we should be able to just tackle it all together, sometimes you have to divide and conquer. And that is exactly what we're doing here. Even with this seeming so straightforward, it's clear that there 
have been famously roadblocks to the Build Back Better Act, to all of these policies. And so I'm curious, what elements of paid family and medical leave do you feel are creating the most friction amongst lawmakers? Again, I believe that there is broad agreement that this is an important policy and that that broad agreement does cut across party lines. However, we do not have unanimous agreement for any single proposal, including in the Senate among all 50 Senate Democrats. And that is where it gets to be challenging. Um, I think that there are some individuals who just may not have seen the value in their lived experience for this type of a benefit to understand why it is essential for all workers to qualify, for all workers to have that available to them. So I personally think that, you know, we have some folks who are just vocalizing unsustainable opposition. So speaking of the opposition, paid family and medical leave was a very contentious issue for Senator Joe Manchin, whose lack of support ultimately killed the Build Back Better Act. And while negotiations were happening, the proposal went from 12 weeks to four weeks to nothing, back to four weeks. What was that journey like for you? Well, what I will say, and this is not limited to that one senator, is that we as House Democrats made some assumptions about the the individual policies that our Senate Democrats supported. And this is um, across policy areas. Um, this is the Senate Democrats. It was their first year in the majority. We are now in our third year in the majority. And so there were many bills that House Democrats had contemplated, wrestled over, you know, gone through the committee process, offered amendments to, and had to defend in our districts, right? We had already done that work. And many of the Senate Democrats may have just co-sponsored policies, but because they didn't move, they were not necessarily fluent in them. They were not um, familiar with what the attack and response might be when addressing groups that maybe weren't supportive or constituents that were even just confused about the policy. And so when the Senate Democrats regained their majority, I think that we all assumed that all 50 Senate Dems would be in a good place because we had really done such a strong scrub on these policies over the course of our majority in the 116th Congress, which is the, the prior Congress, right, 2019 and 2020. That did not, in fact, turn out to be true. And we saw this happen with key policies like the For the People Act, right, voting rights, and, and the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Act, and the way that that got slowed down and repackaged and ultimately failed to advance. I think we've seen that happen on some key healthcare issues like allowing Medicare to negotiate prescription drug prices and, um, you know, the broad-based support even among Democrats for policies like Medicare, hearing, dental, and vision. There is not that unanimous support among our Senate Democrat colleagues, right? And we thought <laughs> that everybody was on board. And so I think that paid leave falls into that bucket. What do I wish we had done differently is I think 
And not to place blame, but I do think that our leading advocacy organizations made the same assumptions that House Democrats made. And that was a fatal flaw because I believe a lot of this work could have been taken care of while the Senate Dems were still in the minority, while we had, you know, what felt like 100 Democrats running for president, many of whom came out of the Senate, and they are very familiar with these issues. We could have been doing this work so that when we had this alignment between the House majority, the Senate majority, and the White House, we would have been ready to go and all aligned. Or at least everybody would have known what those red flags look like for individual senators. But now we're in an environment where individual senators effectively have veto power that exceeds the president's. And that is really challenging because the accountability structures are different for individual senators than there are for the president of the United States. And now, not only have we seen individual senators not support policies that are not only broadly supported amongst Democrats in the Congress, but also in the country, but also broadly supported among the American people, we also have Senate Democrats who aren't even being clear about it. They're not even being straight with us. They're being very coy and, you know, playing hard to get. And it's not right. It's not fair. And it is so dysfunctional. So it's my hope that as we are in year two of this Congress with an eye towards getting things done and getting it across the finish line and signed into law, that when we have policies like this, FMLA, that have been beneficial for a lot of workers, but have very clear and obvious flaws that we are able to take a look and all just be candid (laughs) about what we are trying to do, the problem, the solution, and kind of yes or no. And that's been my, that's my approach to policymaking in general. It's my hope that my colleagues kind of come around to that framework. Wow. Well, it was really great to chat with Representative Underwood as we've had her on the show previously. We documented her original run, and it's just great to see her in office. And it feels particularly exciting because she was part of this record number of women who ran for and won seats in the House. She represents the changing demographics of our representative bodies. And in some ways, it also feels exciting and perhaps surprising, even though it shouldn't be, that she's championing this particular policy as she is not herself a parent. And I think too often paid family leave is thought of as exclusively a policy that helps parents with parental leave. Um, when It's actually so much more. So I'm wondering if, Julie, you could talk about why that is incorrect, why folks who are not planning to have kids should still care about this, why this still affects their lives. Right. Well, it's really important to note that paid leave encompasses paid family and medical leave. And so medical issues, health issues, are something that affect all of us, whether it's our own health issues or the health issues of a loved one. So regardless of our parental status, you know, we give and receive care and we need to care for our own health. And all of that is very important for individuals, it's the right thing to do, and it's the right thing to do for society. Many people may work for organizations or companies that provide them access to paid sick leave. And so this may seem so- somewhat abstract, but I think it's 
important to recognize that that's a pretty privileged position. Right now in the United States, 77% of all private sector workers have paid sick leave. But in the lowest wage quartile, which means for workers that are making up to $15 an hour, only 52% of those workers do. So there is an enormous number of American workers who are earning low pay, working often long and difficult hours that don't have the ability to take even a day off to care for their own health or to care for the health of a, of a loved one. In January alone, 8.8 million Americans had to take off time from work to care for themselves or for a family member who had COVID. And if we do not have some protections in place, some assurances that folks can, can return to a job after taking that time, then we are doing them a tremendous disservice. These are workers who are keeping our economy afloat, and we owe them the right to be able to care for their own health and medical needs. Another statistic that Representative Underwood brought up that I found surprising myself was such a huge chunk of American workers don't even qualify for the Family and Medical Leave Act as it currently exists, just the protection part of things, let alone having paid leave. Exactly. The Family Medical Leave Act only provides unpaid leave to 56% of the workforce due to lots of exclusions based on the size of the business and worker tenure, how long you've been at your company or organization. So many workers just wouldn't even have that option, even if it was financially feasible for them to be able to take unpaid leave. In the past, it feels like paid leave was really seen as a women's issue. And now Representative Underwood and other folks in this conversation are framing it as a much broader issue of worker protection. Do you agree with that shift or do you agree that that's the shift that's happened? I think it's good if we are starting to see this as a recognition that it is everyone's issue, because, in fact, it always has been everyone's issue. And I think it is a reflection of the gender bias, quite frankly, um, the disproportionate caregiving that still falls on women's shoulders, that for so long opponents were able to minimize this issue as a quote unquote women's issue. The fact is that we are all caregivers. We all give and receive care throughout our lives. We all get sick and need to attend to our own personal health needs. I think the the kind of the movement from paid family and medical leave from being perceived as sort of a quote unquote women's issue to a worker issue, I think that's also been a reflection of the fact that with all caregiving issues, there's really been more and more attention to how essential caregiving is to our economy functioning. So we now have economic analyses that, you know, calculate the value of this work, that there is actual monetary value in providing care for your family members, loved ones, and young children. And it's a, a fact that without these workers at their jobs, our society would simply collapse. So I think this this framing and shift from sort of it being a child and family policy issue, a women's issue, to an economic issue, I think that's a welcome development and one that hopefully will continue on. 
Something else that really struck me, Representative Underwood referred to senators who don't support paid leave as expressing unsustainable opposition. Does that resonate with you? You know, I think (laughs) it's possible for folks to continue to obstruct and oppose wildly popular policies, policies that overwhelmingly are supported by the American public, Republican, independent, and Democratic alike. But I think once people know the stakes and recognize those facts, people will be held to account. The part of me that believes to my bone in real democracy does see this as an unsustainable position in the long term, this opposition. I am really heartened by the fact that we are making gains, too, in political representation that looks more like the American public. And I think on issues like paid family and medical leave, it will make a huge difference. I know that I personally always was supportive of these issues. But I remember thinking that 12 weeks you know, of, of paid leave when I had a new baby would feel great. Like that was so luxurious and felt so, you know, so much like I had the gold standard of benefits at the time. And then I remember coming back to work when I had a 12-week-old infant. And, you know, my baby wasn't sleeping through the night. I was getting maybe three to four hours of interrupted sleep. And I remember just feeling like I was exhausted. You know, I had trouble breastfeeding and had an in, I had a hospital-grade breast pump that I was hauling back and forth to the office. And it is just so unreal what we require parents to do in this country. <laughs> it is so unbelievably challenging. And these were in the best of circumstances. I had a healthy baby. I had a pregnancy without complications. I had a relatively easy childbirth. And I was still really struggling at 12 weeks to manage both. So what we are requiring people to do in this country that don't have access to those benefits, it is really inhumane. And it shows, I think, a lack of respect for these workers' dignity, for the value of their work, and of the value of their families and the caregiving responsibilities that they carry out. And I really hope that as more and more people come into positions of elected office and can reflect on their own experiences, can reflect on their own challenges, it will make this opposition unsustainable. I do believe paid family and medical leave is going to be a reality in this country at some point, and it is a question of when, not if. Next week on Women Belong in the House, we're diving into the cost of childcare with Assistant Speaker Catherine Clark. To get deeper into the history of the caregiving crisis, tune in on Thursday for another episode of White Picket Fence. Women Belong in the House is a Wonder Media Network show created by me, Jenny Kaplan. It's produced by Grace Lynch, Maddie Foley, and Taylor Williamson. Original music by Miles Moran. Special thanks to Julie Kohler. Talk to you next time. Have you ever thought about what it's like to be a woman in the room with Putin and Trump? Or maybe you've asked yourself what the Republican Party should really stand for. Or perhaps you're someone who's just constantly wondering if work-life balance is really possible. If you find yourself asking important questions like these, or just want to be better informed about the world around you, 
then you should check out the podcast, The Economist Asks, where you'll find answers to thought-provoking questions from politics to dating apps to business. Each week, influential guests like Malala Yousafzai, Maggie Gyllenhaal, and Melody Hobson sit down with host Anne McElvoy for in-depth and challenging conversations that keep us curious and informed. So keep asking, keep listening, and keep learning. Join the conversation today by subscribing to The Economist Asks podcast. That's The Economist Asks podcast from our friends over at The Economist. Subscribe and listen for free today, wherever you get your podcasts.